I, I think the story of David and Goliath is probably the second most mistold story in all of the Bible right behind the crucifixion. Uh, and maybe the birth of Jesus. I, th- I think out of, out of all the stories that are not Jesus-related, the story of David and Goliath is probably the most, um, n- maybe not mistold, but misunderstood, misinterpreted story in the Bible. And here becomes how we always end up telling the story, right? The little guys can take down the big guys if they're skilled enough or if they have the right weapons or they just even more have confidence in themselves. This is sort of the American way of millennials. If you just believe in yourself, you can do anything. And there's that sort of David and Goliath mentality in that. We have all these different cultural examples. You know, we've got Indiana Jones taking down, you know, the Nazis as they go and look for uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And we've got Frodo taking the ring of power right into the, you know, into Mount Doom and taking down, what's his name? Sauron. It's been a long time since I've seen those. Uh, and so we've got Harry Potter taking out Lord Voldemort. Uh, I think about the 1980 men's hockey team uh, that, you know, defeated the Russians so improbably. It's such a David and Goliath, you know, so often we say that's a David and Goliath story. And we just think, oh, if you believe in yourself and you have the right rotation of hockey players or, you know, you have a wizard on your side, then you're going to be okay. And, and, and that's a wonderfully charming story and sometimes it even happens like in culture but that's not what this story is about per se it makes me think about my my seventh grade baseball team right we were horrible we literally lost every game and I pitched in every game so even now like 30 something years later I look back and I'm like was that my fault and I think about this one game in particular against Warner Robins Middle School that was the town I grew up in and they were kind of our cross the, the across the town rival at, at my middle school. And so we're playing them. And they had this guy, on, they had these guys on our team. Clay Smith was their first baseman. We're in seventh grade, and Clay Smith's like 6'2, six, 6'3. Six, and he could hit a baseball as far as a 13 year old could possibly hit it. And then we had a guy, they had a guy named Mike Dixon. Mike Dixon was their shortstop. And Mike Dixon had the best hands, both as a fielder and as a hitter. Like he just had great hands. And then they had a guy named Chad Sight. Who ended up? We ended up going to high school together and being. A, he ended up becoming a really great friend. And Chad was just so smooth, and he could drive the ball. And I remember my coach, Mike Camo, Coach Camo, telling us before we played Warner Robins Middle. He's like, guys, now they're better hitters than you, and they're better pitchers than you, and they're better fielders than you. But if you believe in yourself, I really believe today. If we go out and everybody believes in themselves, believes in one another, does your best, we can take down these guys. And that got us to the first inning. After the first inning, I think we were up like four to one. But then they ended up beating us like 22 to four. Because as much as we believed in ourselves and wanted to think we were going to take them down, we had no Chad Sipes, Clay Smith, or Mike Dixon's on our team. Like, we just didn't. And they beat us down. Goliath smoked David that day on the baseball field. And this, this story, uh, we can set ourselves up as followers of Jesus for a lot of disappointment if we think that the little guys are always somehow going to win if we just have the right weapons and we have the right attitude and all of that stuff. And so I want to talk today about this David and Goliath story. Now I want to give you the background. So I'm not even going to read verses 1 through 25. As far as Bible stories go, this is a long one as far as what's written about it. So I'm just going to tell you the first 25 verses rather than us all sit here and try to read it. And so here's what happens. Uh, in ancient warfare... Because all the men who were able-bodied were out on the battlefield, 
they would often come up with this agreement that you send out your best representative warrior and we will send out our best representative warrior and whichever one wins, we will all, like the loser will become a servant to the winner. And that's the situation. On one side, as this story begins, you've got God's people, the Israelites, under their new king, King Saul. And remember, King Saul is handsome and it says he is head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. So here's a good-looking warrior man who, if everyone is five feet tall, he's almost six feet tall. And he's standing there with all the army of Israel as, as chapter 17 begins. They're on one hill. They're sitting on a hill. And there's a valley between them. And on this side are the Philistines. It's what the nation of Palestine today is named after, the Philistines, right? And they've got their representative warrior. His name's Goliath. And if you, if you read the King James version of the Bible, if that's the version that you read, or m- most translations will say that Goliath was nine feet tall. Now, he wasn't really nine feet tall. He was actually seven feet tall. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the mid-20th century, have a more accurate translation of his height. It tells us that Goliath was seven feet tall. So on one side, you've got King Saul, probably about six feet tall. On the other side, you've got Goliath, probably almost seven feet tall, truly in that day and age, an absolute giant with all of his armor and all of his weaponry and everything is weighty and heavy and it's all right there. And so Goliath is just yelling taunts at these people. But in the midst of yelling taunts and curses, he comes up with a plan. And he says, here's the plan. This is what everybody does. Rather than all of our men die and and our nation just ceases to be, you send your best, I'll come down, and whoever wins will become the, the, the champion and the others will be enslaved. And so Goliath is this trash-talking representative fighter. He's literally Muhammad Ali of 1000 BC. He is Conor McGregor. I, I came in this morning after setup and, and picked up. We don't like MMA. Natalie doesn't like blood or watching people be humiliated or anything like that. She, and so I walk in, and I don't know what I think my wife's going to tell me, but it wasn't this. She goes, do you know Conor McGregor knocked that guy out in 40 seconds last night? I was like, I did know that, but why do you know that? And she's like, I just hate MMA, but that's incredible. And, uh, and so, you know, Conor McGregor and Muhammad Ali, so full of all this bravado and trash talking and everything else. And that's Goliath. I mean, that's Goliath. He is talking trash. He's defying God. He's defying God's army. And God's people in this moment, sitting on their hill, rather than be courageous, they're terrified including their king, who's taller than everybody else. They're, they're terrified. And so everything, every time that Goliath even says any word, they all literally go and hide behind rocks. Like, Is he done? Is he talking? And they're all panicking. They're all scared to death. They have no courage, and they're sitting there cowering. And we talked last week about David and his brothers and how God chose David as his king. And the main idea of last week was that heart is greater than height in God's economy. And so here comes David, who has quietly been anointed king of Israel, and he comes out to the battlefield to see his brothers. Remember his three brothers? He had a brother named Eliab, whose name means God is father. And he had another brother, Abinadab. And he had a third brother, Shammah. And they're all out there with King Saul and the men of Israel ready to fight. And so David's dad says, I want you to go out to the battlefield, and I want you to check on your brothers, and the dad says literally, and I want you to bring me back a souvenir. Bring me back a a token of what's going on out there because the dad just has confidence that God's people must surely be killing these Philistines. And so David, as we are about to pick up, David is out on the battlefield. 
He's checking on his brothers. Uh, remember, his dad doesn't even name him. His dad says, There's the, I've got the littlest guy. Here's the littlest guy, David, who's nothing, insignificant, peach fuzz on the face, and he's going to check on his awesome older warrior brothers, and, uh, and that's where we're going to pick ourselves up uh, today. So 17, uh, let's begin in verse 26, if we can. So David's out there. Goliath is talking trash. Saul is hiding. The brothers are indignant that their baby brother is out there. And it says, and David said to the men who stood by him, what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him? Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger, this is David's oldest brother, was kindled against David, and he said, why have you even come down here? Who sent you down here? Goliath's talking trash. Saul has said, whoever kills Goliath, because he won't go do it, whoever kills Goliath gets to marry my daughter and is going to be, uh, is basically going to be inherited royalty and they're going to be amazing. And everybody's afraid and everybody wants the wealth and they want the prestige, but nobody wants to actually go and fight the giant. And, and David's trying to just pick up a souvenir, check on his brothers, drop them off some food, go back to watching sheep. And he hears Goliath and he sees everybody scared. And he says, what's going to happen to the guy who kills this guy? And his brothers are furious. They're furious that he's even out there. And so they said, why have you even come down here? And who'd you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness, little boy, tiny? I know your presumption. I know the evil of your heart, for you've come down here just to watch the battle. And David said, what have I done now? We don't even know if David even is addressing his brother. Like his brother's talking trash. Do any of you have trash-talking siblings? Any of you? Bella, good. Yep. Uh, I talk trash to my brother all the time, absolutely. In this moment, the older brothers are talking trash, talking trash, talking trash. And we don't even know, like David just, I, I don't even think he's talking to Eliab. He looks at somebody else and goes, what did I do to make this guy mad? What did I do? Have you ever walked into a conversation and somebody's mad and you're not even sure where the anger came from? You're just becoming the recipient of it, right? And David said, what have I done now? Wasn't it just a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again, just as before. So these brothers are so self-important, but they're totally dismayed. Here's David, and there's three giants, I think, this day. And I want to tell us this. There's obviously Goliath the giant, but I think there's two other giants that David has to face down on this day. I think if we're going to be part of God doing anything incredible in our life, These are pretty universally actually going to be three giants. Maybe not in stature, but three giants we have to face down. The first one, we'll stop there, is the family giant. This is the, this, David's first giant is the giant of his family, right? And these guys, his brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, they're questioning his intent. And they're accusing him. Why are you out here? What's your motive? Why are you even out here? Why are you doing this? You're just in this for you. You're just trying to Act like you're helping dad, but you really just don't want to work. You're being lazy. And whenever, whenever God begins to stir something in our hearts or do something in us, the first thing that's always going to happen is people are going to question your motives and accuse you. Have you ever had a pure heart and someone question you nonetheless? Has that ever happened to you? That's the first giant David's got to deal with on this day. He's got a pure heart. He's just trying to do his thing, what he's been told to do. And his brother's like, why'd you do that? You're so evil. You're so selfish. God, you're the little baby brother. You're the worst. 
And, and so they're accusing and they're questioning his intent. Why are you doing that? You're all in it for you. You think your heart is different. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. And a lot of times you're going to see this. People are going to see this for you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus in your workplace. Your motives are going to get questioned because we live in a very cynical culture at this point, And rightly so, leadership has been abused so much in our culture and people haven't followed through. But anytime that someone begins to move to the top and show leadership or show initiative, their motives are going to be questioned. Their intentions are always going to be questioned, right? This also begins to happen on a community level as a church. Whenever we, as a people of faith, begin to live well in this community and want to see God begin to change hearts and change the community, our intentions will be questioned. This happens uh, with me. I don't know if it's ever happened to you regarding our church, Christ Church Charlestown, but people have told me, oh, you're just doing this so, you're, so your family can get wealthy. And I laugh. I'm like... <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm going to move to Boston to start a church so we can get wealthy. Like, that's not reality. Or people said, oh, you guys are just doing this so you can be famous. Or I've had people say, you're just starting this church because you want to try to shut down other churches in this community. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, somebody asked me one time, they said, what's your end game here? You just want a big church? I was, you trying to shut down a couple other churches? I was like, no. I was like, if everybody in Charlestown today wanted to hear about God and his love and hear the Bible, the five churches in this neighborhood, we would need to multiply those by a hundred to get everyone into a worship place on Sunday. So if the Bible's being preached, we're on the same team. It's that idea of people questioning and accusing and assuming the worst in us. And so David begins to deal with that. And what's David's response to accusations? He just ignores his brothers. He just ignores, totally ignores them. He says, oh, look at does he think he is? You know, why, did, why is he talking to me like that? And then it says, I love the phrase, and, and he turned away from him towards someone else. Listen, when people question your motives and accuse you of something that's not in your heart, the best thing you can do is just ignore them. Just ignore it. We feel like we constantly have to ratchet it up. We can't turn the other cheek. We can't walk away. But what David did with the first giant, the giant of accusation, the giant of questioning intent, was he just ignored it and he walked away. We have to ask the question, am I going to listen to critics or am I going to listen to God? Am I going to listen to critics or am I going to listen to God? You just started a new business. You relocated business, right, Tracy? Like, I can imagine there, you probably have people who question that. Why'd you do that? Why are you leaving? Why are you and at some point, you just have to say, I'm going to block out the noise. I'm going to block out all of it. I'm just going to run my race. I'm going to do what I feel like was the right thing for me, my career, my family. And those are good decisions. At some point, you have to say, am I going to listen to critics or am I going to listen to God? And here comes the second giant. Let's uh, continue in verse 31. Now, when David heard the words that uh, were... when. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. Now David was called the Hakatan. That was the, the Hebrew word. It literally means like tiny. It would be like saying, Oh, here's tiny. David's tiny. His dad didn't even name him by name. He said, Oh, there's one more son, tiny. He's out in the field watching the sheep. The, the, the phrase meant, like, if you were reading, if we were reading this in Hebrew, it would say, there was David who was ruddy 
and handsome and had nice eyes. He had that spark in his eyes that was really compelling. You meet someone with that spark in their eyes. But also he had peach fuzz on his face. And his dad literally called him tiny. He got, I got tiny out in the field. He doesn't even shave yet. He's out watching the sheep, but you can check him out, right? So here comes tiny, and he says, oh, I'll take down that seven-foot guy. Here's a guy who's probably four and a half feet tall, maybe five feet tall, striking God confidence in his eyes. And he says, I will take down that Philistine. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear uh, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised, God-defying, unbelieving Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Here's the greatest warrior in the nation of Israel, punting on his responsibility, saying, Oh man, go ahead, little guy, like red-faced guy. I don't want to fight him. You go ahead. And, and, and here's how cowardly Saul is in this moment. If David loses, all of Israel has to become slaves to the Philistine, to that nation. Saul, standing six feet tall, is deferring to David, standing four foot eight, and endangering the entire country and all of his fighting men because he's so scared of going to have to fight him. It says in 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I haven't tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. If the first giant that David had to fight down was his family and the questioning uh, and critics and those who had questioned and accused him of his intent, the second one is this royal political giant of Saul, who really is the expert. Like, and he wants to dress David in the expert. Saul's saying, man, look, I'm good looking. I'm the king. I am the representative fighter for our country. And he's punting away. He's an expert who won't get in the, ability, in the fight. So Saul is questioning David's ability. If the brothers were questioning his intent, Saul is questioning his ability, and he says David can't win, but at the same time, Saul's not fighting. So what's he do? He outfits David in the armor that he won't go put on to fight. He outfits David in the armor that he won't put on to go fight. Uh, this would be the, the equivalent of this for our day and time would be someone saying, oh, you think you're going to be a Christian? You think you're going to follow Jesus? then let me hand you all my books that are going to tell you how to follow Jesus. Let me tell you, you need to go to this conference and this program and do this thing. This will be someone saying, you think you're going to lead a small group? You've never been to a small group? You think you're going to lead one? This will be someone saying, you think you're going to share your faith? You didn't even grow up in church. You don't know what you believe. You think you're going to tell someone what God has done in your life? You think you're going to get out of debt? I know how much debt you're in. 
One of my best friends I shared with you earlier, he and his wife got out of $225,000 worth of debt in 18 months. It was incredible. And I remember when they said, now it took a lot of sacrifice. I remember the night we talked to them, they had just paid it off. She, I said, what are you guys going to do? She was like, I can tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to eat peanut butter and jelly, and we're not going to eat spaghetti. Because I've eaten more peanut butter and jelly and more spaghetti in the last 18 months than you can ever imagine. I was like, good for you. Go buy the nicest steak that you possibly can. You earned it. Listen, they faced a lot of people saying, you will never get out of that debt. You can't do it. It can't be done. You've accumulated it. You'll be under it till you die. That was those accusations from experts who told them how they were going to have to run their race while people were so in debt. You have people who will say, who will question your ability and say, you can't be happy in your marriage. You can't live with integrity. And then they're going to tell you, you need more seminary. You got to go to seminary. I texted a buddy this week. I had a ministry situation this week, and I texted one of my friends, and I was like, well, this was lesson 1001 that nobody told me about in seminary that 15 years later I've dealt with because a lot of the stuff they teach you in seminary is not real life. It's just books about God and the Bible and, and a lot of people's thoughts about it. Seminary is fantastic. It's great. But it doesn't prepare you to follow God in the same way that a relationship with Jesus and a surrendered heart totally will. Renee and I were talking this morning. He was just saying, man, you know, most of the problems in this world just come down to people being hard-headed and not choosing to follow God with everything they have. It's like, that is really brilliant. That is very true. Most of the problems in my life come because I'm hard-headed and not surrendered to God. But there will be experts who will try to tell you how to run your race and say, you need more church, more seminary, or they'll say, you need to be more like me. It's amazing how so often the experts on faith and, and living right are some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the people who can best tell you how to live their life are horrible at living theirs or have the worst attitude about theirs. Uh, and David faced that on that day. And so what's David's response? He testifies. If the first one with his brothers, they question his intent and they accuse, he just ignores them. When Saul says, you can't do this, what does David say? Let me tell you what God's done in my life. You know, you, he says, I used to be a shepherd. He's already changed his identity. I mean, he, his dad sent him from a shepherd. Just go check on your brothers. In his dad's mind, his son is still a shepherd. In David's mind, he's not a shepherd anymore. He's done being a shepherd. And so David says, listen, when I used to be a shepherd, when a bear came or a lion came to try to attack a sheep, I would kill it. And then he says, it wasn't me, it was God. It was God who delivered me from a lion and from the bear. And God is going to deliver me in this country today from this uncircumcised, unbelieving, God-defying giant. David's response was he testified of all that God had done before. And then, I love it, he fights his fight. He fights his fight. Can't you just see this kid? Like, I can see Noah being tasked, or actually I can see Owen. Noah will never be, Noah does not want to fight. Like, Noah is good without, like, Owen, he's our little fighter. His name literally means little warrior. So if ever there is the kid who's going to grow up to be the lightest, lightweight MMA fighter, it's going to be Owen, right? And so they're dressing Owen. Uh, he's getting dressed in all of his armor, and he's got it on. The helmet comes down, and you can't even see. He's having to sort of 
tip his head back to even see under it, and the, the breastplate's coming down all the way to the knees, and he's got the mail on under it, and he can't even move around. He's got this sword that he literally has to hold up here. This is David, because if he held it down here, it would literally be dragging into the ground, and David's got all this stuff on that Saul should be wearing and Saul should be fighting with, and David says, I can't wear this. I haven't tested this. I've got to... I've got to fight the way that God has prepared me to fight. He says, I've fought with the stones and the sling before. I've done that. That's my fight. I'm going to fight my fight rather than fight my fight your way. He says, I have not even tested these. Listen, we're never going to be able to move wearing someone else's armor. You'll never be able to move around in victory wearing somebody else's plan for your life. God has a plan for your life, and he wants to do incredible things through you, but he cannot do it if you're wearing someone's armor, carrying somebody else's books, sitting in some other expert's conference. God has already been with you, preparing you, outfitting you. Are we going to listen to the experts, or are we going to listen to God? Will our ears be full of the advice of experts, or are our ears going to be full of the advice and wisdom of God. Now the third giant, the enemy giant. Let's read verse 40 through the through 51. And the Philistine, or excuse me, so David took uh, his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He He mocked him, for he was but a youth, ruddy. Again, that's that idea of being peach fuzz-faced and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Uh, If you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book, David and Goliath, it's really fantastic. But the biggest issue I take with that book is it doesn't uh, incorporate into the conversation the God element of God interrupting this story. And so Malcolm Gladwell talks about how uh, Goliath would have had a, some type of, like a, not a pituitary issue, but some type of issue that would have caused him to grow to this height. But because he would have had that issue, he also would be almost blind. And so it says that Goliath comes out and he's got an armor bearer in front of him because he can't even see who it is he's going to fight. And then Gladwell makes the case that he says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Because he can't even see, like he thinks David's staff is a stick. He can't see well to even fully know what's going on. So Gladwell makes the case that it's really obvious why David killed Goliath on that day. It's that Goliath was a compromised weak warrior, even though he was big. That's not actually what's going on here. But Goliath uh, thinks David's nothing. Verse 44, and the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and with spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet, God, uh, to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love this. Like I can just see Dave, uh, Goliath lumbering toward David, and here's David. He pulls his rock out of his pocket, puts it in the sling, all four foot eight of him, no armor on, and just starts bolting wide open toward Goliath, just running toward him. Verse 49, and David put in his hand put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slings it, and he strikes the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When David ran and stood over the Philistine, and he took his sword, he took out Goliath's sword, which I imagine to be almost as tall as David, right? He takes it out, he takes out Goliath's sword, and he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. There's a moment there where Goliath is laying down and not dead. There's a moment there where he's just laying there about to die, but not quite, because it says that he didn't die until David hit him with the sword. Man, what a powerful image. This four foot eight, nothing, tiny, little, can't even shave every day, little guy standing there over this champion of people, the seven foot man, and he whips his sword out of his sheath while the guy is still alive and literally drives it into his throat and kills him right there. Pretty powerful. Pretty incredible. The third, day, the third giant that David faces is the enemy giant. This one, Goliath, taunted and cursed God and questioned God and questioned David's faith and questioned David's identity. Because for David, and it should be this way for all of us, for something to be secular, I was talking with a friend about this the other day, uh, Europe in the last hundred years has become increasingly secular. And because we identify more with Europe as a country in New England, are as an area in New England than we do with Texas or the Southeast or the Bible Belt or the Far West, we, by default on some level, have become increasingly secular in New England in the last hundred years. To be secular doesn't mean to be pagan. To be secular just means to separate our faith from the public life, right? We want our schools to be secular. We want that like separation. You hear this idea of separating God and country or God and culture or God and work or God and education or whatever it may be. We separate them. The way it ought to be for people who follow Jesus, we don't separate those things. There is no secular identity in the sense of I don't have my church life or my faith life and then I have the rest of my life. There ought to be a cohesiveness to every bit of it. Like I can't follow Jesus on Sunday and then just do my thing Monday through Saturday, right? That's a secular, segmented life. And Jesus never called anyone to follow him one day a week, but not follow him all the days of the week. He didn't just say, just say I want your soul, but you get to keep your uh, relationships. You get to keep your this or your that. He called us to follow him with everything or not follow him at all. And he was totally comfortable. I'm off the notes right now. But Jesus was totally comfortable saying, oh, if you want to follow me with one part of you, but not with all parts of you, then don't follow me at all. This would happen a lot. And I, you know, we think of Jesus as being this, we call, I call him Swedish beauty pageant Jesus with 
beautiful blonde flowing hair and blue eyes and a white robe and a blue sash who looks like he's in a beauty pageant, right? And we just envision him being so nice and like holding lambs and bunnies and he just loves everybody no matter what. And so we just, I, I think we can have this idea of anybody who even approached, he was just always taking them in and, and just turning a blind eye to everything. There are multiple times in the scriptures where people came up to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but... And Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. And he let people walk away. One time he let a guy walk away, and whoever wrote the gospel, I can't remember which one it's in, I think it's in Luke, it says, he looked at him and loved him. I can just see this guy running up to Jesus in excitement, saying, I want to follow you with everything. And But, and Jesus saying, it doesn't work that way. You follow me with everything, or you don't follow me at all. And I can see the guy slowly walking away with his head down, bummed out. But Jesus didn't lower the standard to follow him. It says he, as he was walking away, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. David didn't have this segmented idea of he's got his faith and then he's got his family or he's got all this other stuff. It was all the same. So when Goliath was insulting David, he was also insulting God. And when Goliath insulted God's army, he was also insulting God because it was all one thing. And to have insulted God meant that he had to die. Goliath that day had to die because God's army and God's character and God's reputation was on the line. And so the fight was much bigger than David at that moment. I really believe that Goliath would have gone down whoever would have gone out there. Saul would have, take, Saul would have taken him down. The brothers would have taken him down. David would have taken him down. Somebody could have gone out there with no arms that day and done a karate chop and taken down Goliath that day because God's reputation, not David's, was on the line. And so in that moment, this is the person, by the way, who taunts and curses God. This is the one who says, man, you're an idiot for being a Christian. What are you doing following God? Are, have, those people who follow Jesus are simple-minded, bigoted morons. Why would you do that? These are the people who would say to you, you believe that? You think your faith is actually going to change your marriage? You think your faith is actually going to change your finances? You think your faith is going to change your relationship with your boss or your coworkers? You think your faith is going to usher you into eternity? Look, when we die, we just go to the dirt and that's it. End of story. You, you really believe that God has something on the other side for people who believe? This is those critics, those people who taunt and curse God. And they'll say, best of luck with that. I can't tell you how many times we've heard that here. People will say, your family moved here to start a church. What is wrong with you? We moved here three years ago. Uh, two years ago, two, two years ago and two weeks ago, we had our first service. I can't tell you over the last 156 weeks how many people have said, you moved your family here to start a church? Good luck with that. That's not going to work, right? You understand that that's not going to happen. These people aren't insulting me or you or our church or anything like that. They're questioning and on some level taunting and scoffing at the living God. And we don't fight back with, you know, rocks as much as maybe sometimes you want to or I want to, right? We, we just surrender it to the Lord and say, the battle is the Lord's. If you hear anything today, if you walk out of here with anything else, hear, with nothing else, hear this. In your life, when you come against giants, the battle is the Lord's. Critics 
experts, bullies, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And we've got to do, and so David's response to Goliath is he responds with truth. He responds with truth. And then he responds with God assurance. And he responds by attacking and killing the giant. I got this one friend, he and I'll hang out every now and then. He doesn't at all believe in anything. And, uh, but I love him. Like he's very convinced of his ag- agnosticism. And so we will go out, and he is so, his arguments, usually when I'll talk with someone who doesn't believe, you can kind of find a hole in in their logic, and you can pick into it, and and you'll hear them go, huh, well, I've never thought about that. If you ever want a funny, like, if you ever want to be entertained, let's go out, and I'll buy you a coffee, and I'll tell you the funniest story since I've lived in New England of people thinking they have a lockdown worldview, but then they will say something that makes no sense. And it's not consistent with what they believe. And I'll say, oh, what about that? And their intellectual thing that they were so confident about will begin to unravel. But this one friend, he truly does not believe. And there are almost no holes in his unbelief. So we'll go out and it will feel like I'm sitting there with Goliath. Because I can't find a hole in what this guy does not believe. And I have to remind myself in that moment, it's not me. It's not my fight. I'm I'm nothing. He belongs to God. I belong to God. The battle is the Lord's. And the Lord has to change his heart, not me. I don't carry the weight of that. I don't have to win the day in that conversation. So David's response is he expresses truth. He maintains his God assurance. And then he attacks and kills the giant. We have to decide, are we going to listen to bullies? Or are we going to listen to God? I love uh, Martin Luther King weekend. I love Martin Luther King's quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. When we meet darkness and we meet hate and we meet bullies and we meet God's opponents, we love them and live in the confidence in the light that God uh, has the battle that belongs to him. So the, the hero of the story here is not David. And this is where we get the story of David and Goliath totally wrong. When we tell this story as a culture, we tend to think that David is the hero of the story. We think the men's hockey team in 1980 is the hero of the story. We think that uh, Indiana Jones is the hero of the story. And any time that the hero becomes uh, the people who fought the battle, then it's a misrepresentation of the story of David and Goliath. The hero of this story is God. God prepared David. God equipped David for the battle. God gave David confidence in him and not in himself. That came from God, not David. And then God was the one who gave victory over Goliath. It wasn't tiny. It wasn't the little guy who beat Goliath. It was a rock. And God is the one who made the rocks and gave David the skill to take down the giant. And so I want to encourage you, when you face a giant, you have three options of what you can do. You can look outward at a giant. You can look out at your giants. Or you, can, um, or you can look inward to yourself. Or you can look up to God. Saul was looking out at the giant and he was dismayed. 
we hear this story and we think, oh, we need to look in and find our inner strength. And those aren't the things that won the day. It was when David, because he looked up to God, not out at critics or experts or bullies, not into his strength. And he responded in confidence in God's presence and his power. So uh, when we hear this story, if you're like me, I, I tend to make myself David. As you hear the story, and you're, if you, are you placing yourself anywhere in this? I want to tell you the gospel in this story, right? The gospel is that God does for us what we can never do for ourselves, right? The gospel is that we're all sinners and we need God's forgiveness. So because we need that, he sent Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sins. So where are we in the story? We are the nation of Israel sitting there cowering on the sidelines. We're not David. You and I spiritually are not David. We're not the ones who can take down the giant. Jesus in this story, if, there, if we're doing parallels and we're giving out roles, Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who takes down the giant, which is our separation from God. We're the ones standing on the sideline watching. And what happens after David beats Goliath? They all then get their courage and they all start running and just chasing down Philistines and killing them all. Jesus is the one who gives us victory that we couldn't have secured on our own. He's the one who makes the way. We aren't David. Jesus is David. We're Israel, cowering and endangered, and then emboldened in freedom because the enemy has been defeated. Remember that God has slain our greatest giant. The battle is the Lord's. If I learned anything last year, if, if you've been coming for a little bit, you know parts of the story. So I grew up... Um, in a home with a mom who worked three jobs and we didn't have a ton. You hear about it a lot. It's probably, honestly, my dad leaving when I was two and us struggling financially are probably two of the biggest things that drive the way I think other than faith in God, right? And so if I were to sum up last year, it would be for the first time in my life as a pastor, God pushed past the idea that what our church has or doesn't have is going to determine what God wants to do. And so last year, I felt like, and we felt like collectively, God would say, here's an opportunity. And we, for the, we wouldn't say, oh, what's that going to cost? We would say, does God want us to do it? And then God would provide. There was one moment last year where in about a 72-hour span, we felt like God called us to $16,500 of stuff, opportunities that weren't in the church budget. And we said, we feel like this is what God wants us to do. And can I tell you, within two weeks, without knocking on a door or calling anyone or anything like that, $21,500. People would call. Like, I, I had a girl I went to high school with. She called and said, I don't know why, but I feel like God wants my husband and I to give your church $5,000. The battle is the Lord's. There are things that God's going to call our church to that we can't accomplish outside just the grace of God supernaturally showing up. But can I tell you that God does that over and over and over. So if your marriage is broken, I want to tell, or if you have a friend whose marriage is broken. And this week I uh, heard of a couple of people who we know and love in this neighborhood whose marriages are almost uh, irreconcilably broken. But not for the Lord. If your finances are busted and you feel like you're crumbling under the weight of debt, can I tell you that the battle is the Lord's and you are never drowning. Jesus is the hero. If you're in a work situation that seems impossible, if you feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world, the biggest fraud, 
you know, you come to church, you don't know what you believe. If you feel like you know absolutely nothing and God is calling you here, but you're right here and you don't know how you're going to get from here to there, can I tell you the battle is the Lord's? And I don't want you to look out and I don't want you to look in. I want to encourage you to look up to God because he is the one who took down Goliath. It was not David. And there are giants. Listen, there are giants that God is going to call us to slay. They have to go down in your life and in our church and in our community. We were talking yesterday with a friend. I'll close with this story. Sorry. We were talking yesterday with a friend about something in our neighborhood that is so fundamentally broken that it's the way that, in my opinion, the way that our community is dealing with this one area of brokenness is actually making the problem worse. Have you ever seen something where people are trying to fix something, but they're actually making the problem worse? And so we were talking with our friend, and, um, and I'm talking, and it's one of those moments where Natalie is wishing she's close enough to nudge me to tell me to shut up, right? And, uh, and I'm like, I think we're making that problem worse. And our friend says, oh, I, I disagree. We're making it better. I was like, we're not making it better. It's getting worse in this community. The numbers back up that this issue is getting worse. And so she leaves, our friend leaves, and Nat goes, why'd you say that? I was like, she needs to not be lied to. She needs to hear the truth. This is a giant that has to fall on our neighborhood. It's something that's fundamentally broken in our neighborhood. And pretending like these Band-Aids we're throwing on this cancer are not helping. It just makes us feel better about ourselves to see that we put a Band-Aid on something when really everyone in this community is dying of this sort of cancer of a problem that we've got. And it is a giant. And that goes, well, how do you think it's going to get fixed? And I said, I don't know. But God knows. And the battle is the Lord's. And when we align ourselves with the Lord, he will put us up against giants that we cannot bring down. The greatest one is our sin. He took care of that one for those who are part of his family. So I have the utmost confidence that he can fix broken families, addiction, broken finances, systems of brokenness. A neighborhood where most of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people here, if they died, took their last breath on earth today, would step out into eternity separated from God. Those are fundamental problems that we cannot fix, but God can. God can, if our confidence is in him. Let me pray for us.